Welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Thousands of people have been killed and more than two million people have fled since Russian troops invaded Ukraine at the end of February. And even though this conflict is geographically far away, we're seeing and feeling some of the impacts here at home. The U.S. and European Union have issued sweeping economic sanctions on Russia in response to the escalating war in Ukraine. As Russia becomes more economically isolated in all of this, there have also been global impacts from this conflict. Some of the most tangible changes that you've probably noticed in your everyday life here are changes at the gas pump. We wanted to get an expert on the line with us to talk about what specific impacts we could see here in the U.S. and more specifically in New Mexico. Chris and I spoke to a local professor from UNM who specializes in national and international finance. Here's our conversation. Here to talk to us today is Riley White. He's an associate professor at the University of New Mexico Anderson School of Management. Riley, thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be on. To start, it's obvious that New Mexico is far from Ukraine, but how should people who are very far away, not connected through maybe relatives or family, how should we look at this conflict from a standpoint of, say, does this affect me? So one of the things that I think is understated often in our discussions of finance and economics, especially in our our own country, is how very global it is. And so when we think of things like Russia and Ukraine, it's happening on the other side of the world. And, and regardless of, of sort of what's been coming out of the media and these things, these actually do have actually tangible effects for us here, even here in New Mexico. Um, perhaps the most, and to give you an example of this as, as at, at different levels. So we might look at Russia as, as sort of a source of, um, of concern, a source of volatility, but also in response, we would look at, say, the sanctions that were imposed upon Russia. What does that do and how important is Russia with regards to the global economy? Uh, we might also look at... Um, uh, at Ukraine. And even though Ukraine has a very different resource structure, we know that any type of conflict, any type of, of, of war creates volatility in the international markets. And what that means is uncertainty in, uncertainty in prices. And it also means uh, challenges as we look ahead, even here in New Mexico, uh, for prices of goods in supply chains. And so the big picture is, is it's part of a Understanding that we're part of a globally connected uh, economy is 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 always what um, is always what strikes me as something that's incredibly important to value. Even though we are so far away here in New Mexico, and at times things might feel isolated or distant for this conflict on the other side of the world, as you pointed out, thinking about what's happening there with Russia choosing to invade Ukraine, what was the first thing that came to mind for you as a professor? Oh my goodness. So as a, as a professor, obviously there's a whole bunch of, of personal feelings you feel. And I don't want to, I, I want to separate that and say, I, I, you know, you know, that there's a very human feeling anytime where, where, where you experience empathy for war going on anywhere in the world. Um, but as a professor, you see this and, and you look at this as going, my goodness, this is going to be, you know, we, we look at this as it is, it is something that creates a situation that is worse off for basically everyone and and not just here in the united states but also among the people who are most affected the ukraine but also russian the russian citizens themselves 
And, and, and when we think about that, there's a lot of ways to look at that. And so when we think of human costs to different aspects and different environments, we often think about um, the prices we pay, the availability of goods, supply chains, job security, things we might take for granted. And, and when these, when these things are, are thrown aside in the event of a global conflict, then you have sort of a building, uh, uh, a building and all consuming uncertainty and the markets. And, and the thing to look at when you think of finance and economics is, and I always like to say to my students, the F in finance stands for future. The markets price in everything that's going to happen. It's not, it doesn't care so much about what happened a year ago, 10 years ago. Think of this as one big prediction as to what we think will happen. And so the market responds very quickly based on new information that it obtains. And um, there were some weeks right before the onslaught of the, um, of the invasion where there was uncertainty as to whether there would actually be an invasion. And so, and so many people were, were keen to brush it aside. And now I think now we're looking at not only has there been an invasion and not only has there been a human cost, but there's an associated array of both short-term and long-term implications, not only uh, uh, for, uh, for folks living in, in, in Europe and in Asia, but also right here in the United States and right here in New Mexico. Some of the immediate impacts and ones you mentioned already were things like rising costs here. We've already seen rising gas prices. That's certainly part of the thing that I think is visually out there and being discussed quite a bit right now. But what other maybe economic impacts would you expect to see from this conflict? And maybe for, you know, the everyday New Mexican gas and maybe anything else? So I'll, I'll talk about gas in, in a second as well. But also when you think of sanctions imposed upon Russia, Russia has a huge amount of, of natural resources. And, and some of those we understand very well. Some of those we might take, uh, we might forget that they exist. A good example of this is, is palladium. Palladium represents about, uh, or Russia, I should say, represents almost half the world's exports of palladium. Palladium is used in everything from catalytic converters to fuel cells to things, parts and stuff that we use here in New Mexico the time, uh, dental fillings and crowns. Um, it's it, it's it also Russia also produces a lot of platinum and nickel um, that go into electrical meters, silicon chips, things that have a, a, a big effect on global supply chains. And so when we think of costs, when we think of shutting off one of the markets for these things, it does have an, and, and I, it, it does have an effect on prices and it does have an effect on supply chains. And so if you think about it this way, it seems almost odd to think that that say the price of of a catalytic converter or an, or an electric car's fuel cell would be in effect affected by what's going on in Russia and Ukraine, but it absolutely would be, um, as would be things like silicon chips, which actually during the last pandemic, we had such a tough time uh, looking at uh, uh, adjusting our supply chains. We've never actually really recovered from the pandemic supply chain loss to begin with, and that creates a real human cost. Now, now, Chris, you also mentioned oil, and, and I, I don't want to undercount that. And there are reasons that oil specifically for New Mexico um, we feel that a lot. And, and not only in the sense that the United States, um, few people know, United States is the global leader in oil production. That's a title we've had just for the last few years, uh, uh, driven by um, technological advancement in oil and the way that we bring oil up from the ground. Uh, but also, uh, New Mexico, of course, is the third biggest state for oil production uh, in the United States after uh, Texas and North Dakota. And um, when we think of oil, it is a global commodity. Uncertainty means prices go up. But also, so Russia is the third biggest uh, producer of oil. And, and so one reason that we're seeing this increase is that Russia is, you know, 
their economy. Uh, anytime where we look at a situation where reducing the supply on the global market from a major producer, that creates volatility. That means that the existing supply becomes more valuable and that increases prices. And, and what we're going to see, and if we, and for New Mexicans, this, this hits hard, you know, if we look at AAA data, other things, the average New Mexican drives more uh, than the average American does. Uh, we drive about 19,000 miles a year here in New Mexico. Uh, that's about 50% more than the US average. And, and to give a sense of that, a dollar increase in the price of gas translates to about $800 extra a year uh, from the bottom line of somebody's pocketbook. So, so that's a real effect uh, uh, of the crisis on, on New Mexicans. You mentioned the pandemic supply chain crisis. Obviously that has also played into some of the factors that we felt with inflation happening in the American lifestyle over the last six months hereabouts. Along those lines, when you consider the conflict between Ukraine and Russia, and then also the pandemic supply chain crisis, is one of them playing more of effect than the other or is it hard to separate the two? So supply chains are interesting. When we think of supply chains, you've, we've heard this term so much in the last uh, couple of years, but but it's so important. It's, it's one of those things that we talk about all the time and we need. So for the last few decades, if we back up the United States, we've benefited from sort of a very global supply chain. On average, that does, or historically, that had reduced costs uh, uh, significantly over, over the period of many years. The problem is, is now uh, uh, we found out that a lot of our infrastructure for those supply chains, any single linkage, it's almost like a supply chain, think of literally a chain, uh, where any linkage, if you remove any of those linkages, the chain breaks down. And what's happened is initially the pandemic removed a couple linkages and we couldn't find a way to find new chain that we could actually make work. And uh, and so what happened is when Russia and Ukraine is that we have, we found a lot of uh, American importers, suppliers, uh, producers who rely on the supply chain to make goods have found other sources of revenue. And this is interesting. Russia and Ukraine are a component part of a lot of supply chains, but they aren't the full story. And, and this is sort of, I would look at it more as aggravating a existing problem that we haven't fully solved yet, uh, even worse uh, than it is. It's sort of, it, it really is sort of, um, uh, you know, it's, it's putting salt in sort of our supply chain wounds at this point. And not only because that Russia itself represents a source of raw material, which is used in the production of goods around the world, but but uh, uh, it also creates um, difficulty anytime where you have uncertainty globally in, in sourcing revenues and supplies or when firms are, are, say, hesitant to invest globally because they're worried about geopolitical geopolitical effects. Uh, this has a result in, in potentially making costs uh, more difficult. Supply chains take years to come back online. Oil takes years to come back online. It's easy to cut. It takes a long time to build. And I think if I were to boil it down to one thing, it's that, you know, our progress right now in rebuilding supply chains, we've made progress. Now they're going to come back down again. We're going to look at this again and, and reevaluate our situation. Um, and, and I think it, it ties into that broader picture of how globally integrated we are and how globally uh, important uh, sort of every aspect of the supply chain actually is. Other immediate impacts we might see here in the U.S. From this conflict, we're also seeing a refugee crisis, the possibility of cyber attacks. Could we also see those elements playing out, you know, in Ukraine affecting New Mexicans or or the U.S. at large? You know, as, as easy it is to always talk about 
economics and finance from a high level, you know, there are, there's real suffering uh, happening for the people that, that, that are moving. And I want to acknowledge that, but yes. So, so when you have the movement of, of, of different people that creates, that creates strain, uh, 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 not intentionally, of course, but it's sort of an adjustment into new labor markets. Is their movement temporary or is it long-term? Is it a, uh, uh, you know, is it a crisis that will be resolved in the next few months? Or is this a crisis that we're going to look at, uh, uh, in a decade from now and say, this has not been resolved effectively yet. And those unknowns are, are sort of preface my answer to that question, because we just, we don't know. There are huge effects to, 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 to refugee and displacement globally and economically. In the long run, if we look at ways, you know, if we look at, at say, existing economics and finance research around, uh, around say, uh, immigration or refugees, there are net benefits to the countries the refugees go to uh, economically. Uh, immigration has, has of course, many net benefits uh, in aggregate to the economy, and and uh, and there's a you know slew of studies that have highlighted the relationship between uh, economic growth and 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 immigration and and in that sort of sense. But but the problem is is that movement and, and how the movement of people and and and, and disunity. Uh, uh, will progress, you know, obviously, I, you know, Poland has absorbed almost over 900,000 refugees at this point, and, and then uh, to a lesser extent, I know the UK Prime Minister was under fire for, for, for this week for just admitting only 50. And, and, and the question is, is does Poland have the internal economic capacity to absorb uh, a million refugees out of a population of 40 million? Or does it, you know, it's very hard, and, and we don't know yet, the economic consequences yet, because we're not certain if the refugees view themselves as primarily being there. Let's wait until it comes down a bit or whether or not they'll be they'll have a home to go back to uh, uh, when that time comes. And so and so that and then you have the additional costs of integrating, you know, uh, uh, you know, a, a displaced people within your own population, which is which is costly, but can be done. You know, you think about the unification of Germany between East and West Germany. You think about, um, you know, other unification mechanisms that have happened throughout economic history that have been very interesting learning experiences. That's a really complex question. And we have a lot of unknowns right now. New Mexico certainly has played a role as we've seen, even in the conflict in Afghanistan in accepting refugees. I know that Holloman Air Force Base over near Alamogordo had obviously played a role in there. The United States has clearly played a sort of outsider role in this conflict at this point so far. I think about that though, in connection to New Mexico, which has a major part of its economy is the military in a major way. Um, we think about the the national laboratories, both Los Alamos and Sandia are there. Um, they play a role in national security, technological advancements related to weapons. Um, I think about as well the fact that Kirtland Air Force Base here, by some accounts, also has one of the, or if not the largest stockpile of nuclear weapons in the United States as well. There's been some reporting to suggest that out there. So New Mexico is clearly in great Ingrained in sort of the the military industry of the United States, but the U.S. as well has not played a large public role in the Ukraine. Russia conflict, right? We're staying out of it, as we've sort of said at this point. So, with that in mind, um, I guess I wanted to ask: Do you get a perspective that? This conflict, though, has already maybe or will be ramping up New Mexico and its economic activity as it relates to 
military industrial complex? So the short answer to your question is, is, is absolutely in, 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 in a few important regards. So obviously, as you mentioned, we're, we're home to, you know, national laboratories at Sandia and Lanol and, and, and a whole slew of military bases from Holloman up to Kirtland and, and, and everywhere in between. And, 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 and we are uniquely, our economy differs from many other states. And so a good example of this is we have uh, uh, one of the highest ratios of government employed workers, which includes military military of any state in, in the country. Um, we also have some interesting aspects of that. So that means that if we look at sort of how our employment changes over time, during recessions, we often um, lay off people more slowly because of the concentration of government work, but we also hire people more slowly. And so that ratio means that that's insulated us from, from, from the severity of certain economic downturns, uh, but it also makes it, makes it very hard uh, to build out and, and sort of recognize our true economic capacity when there's good times. But that said, when we think of things like um, the military industrial complex and how important it is for New Mexico in general, uh, this underlies sort of our strategic important and advantages involving research for military hardware, accessories, all of those things become have, have economic benefits, not only for the workers that are employed and just the many thousands of workers employed at Lanol and Sandia, but also the, the government contracts that flow in, the, 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 the private public partnerships, other things that are fundamental to sort of economic development and growth. It's hard to, to, to talk about silver linings of, of invasions and in ways, but for New Mexico, that is one. Um, you know, obviously the other big silver lining for us as an oil producer is that because we have so much severance taxes and, and other related oil taxes that come from oil, that, uh, you know, that it does produce a boon for, for our state coffers, at least at the, at, you know, because um, in any given year, 25 to 40% of our, of our discretionary revenue comes from it comes from oil, oil taxes. And so it becomes a, it becomes a very important aspect as well. So fiscally, it means that even though while, you know, it, you know, New Mexico is well positioned in the next few years, I think even better than some states, I mean, there are some things to look at as well. And, and so New Mexico also uniquely, we have, uh, you know, the fewest number of publicly traded companies uh, of any state, which is very interesting. Um, and, and, and that means that's part of the reason that we don't see a lot of hirings and firings at the same time. Um, and another part of that aspect is, though, is that some companies that that the money will flow towards in, in the event of increased defense budget spending aren't really headquartered in New Mexico. And so we don't see all of those benefits, per se, although we do provide a lot of the research and strategic direction a lot of those companies pursue. You know, speaking to the general public, and I don't know if you've even gotten this question yet, but or if it's come to mind, but I think people want to know in general, how bad could this potentially get and for how long? Do you have a particular so one of the things is I want to preface this by, by you know, uh, our old economic saying is that prophecy is, you know, a terrible occupation to be in because we're always wrong. But uh, our side on this note is to note that in, in acknowledging that is that as long as there'll be uncertainty with regards to the economic condition, we'll see elevated prices. So let's think about what that means. So even if Russia is successful at invading Ukraine, it's likely that there'll be a long extended period of sanctions. It's likely that uh, uh, there will be an extended period period of uncertainty involving the global economic standpoint. And, you know, even though we have so many alternative energy providers, there is no mechanism by which they can ramp up production in a way. Uh, uh, we are so reliant on oil uh, that it's unlikely things like oil and gas prices will be able to respond quick enough. Over the midterm, a midterm, say one, two, three, five years, uh, producers will be able to respond effectively to increases in supply. We'll start drilling more oil, 
we'll have more supply come online and likely that will dampen some of the immediate effects around oil. Now, supply chains are likely to exist. We, we hoped by the beginning of 2022, we'd be talking about, you know, how our supply chains were more or less restored by now. That hasn't been the case. And so I think we're going to see uncertainty out at least through 2024 involving supply chains. And so what that means is, in short, my prediction is for uncertainty to continue uh, at least over the next two to three years, beyond which it's just anyone's guess. But that means a period of elevated oil prices. That means a period of elevated supply change. And that means pressure on inflation uh, uh, for us as well. Um, you know, we had hoped and I still believe in some respects in this that that that, you know, we, we looked at the question of whether inflation, which is which is big in the minds of many New Mexican would continue, many New Mexicans would continue beyond uh, a short term. And I and, and sort of the much of the field were in a consensus that we we kind of loop around and potentially um, uh, reach a level where, where where inflation would start going down by now. Our hope was that it would go down by now. But when we look at increasing oil prices, and when we think of inflation as a measure, that's a representative basket of goods. And a lot of that is stacked towards energy. And so if energy costs go up, as we've been seeing, we're going to see that reflected in inflation numbers. Wages, wage growth powers inflation over the long term as well, even though the last numbers were a little disappointing on wage growth. And uh, and, and it's suspect this will, this will create an extended period of higher prices. Uh, uncertainties, the Fed is expected to raise rates this year. That could take a lot of the gas out of the housing market. And it could put us in, in sort of a very different economic picture in one or two years from now. And so, and so putting that on and, and knowing that hat is open to a lot of uncertainty and new information, um, it does, you know, as we look towards, towards the coming economy, um, uncertainty will continue. And, and that means uh, uh, and that will manifest itself as 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 higher prices for a lot of New Mexicans across not just oil, but a lot of goods. New Mexico is already a poor state in a lot of ways. Right. And I wanted to ask you specifically, just follow up on the oil production. We know that just overall oil production dropped due to demand dropping during the pandemic. Not as many people driving. Um, and I also understand we haven't really rebounded since then, um, making us maybe more reliant or impacted by this conflict in Ukraine. What do you make of this? So, so in response to a historic drop in oil prices that we saw uh, beginning in, in March and April of 2020, and, and famously in May, when we looked at forward contracts uh, 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 falling you know, to, to prices that were unheard of uh, in oil prices, we had suffered in 2020 a, a demand shock. People were no longer buying oil. They were at home. We had millions of layoffs. We were in a, a very dire situation. Since economic production came back online, a lot of that that capacity is also starting to come back online, but that takes often years. And, and, and it's partially drilling infrastructure, the way drills work. It's partial the availability and presence of leases. And it's partial just, just the nature of, of the economy. We're shifting to a position. Um, and to give you a sense of this, oil, the oil market itself has always had shocks. And it's taken a long time just because it's such an asset intensive industry to, uh, to respond effectively to those shock, shocks with additional production. Um, to give some sense about this, we have, you know, in New Mexico, we have we're, we have a couple of oil basins, the San Juan and the Permian Basin, uh, perhaps the most famous. And, and in Southeast New Mexico, the Permian
Permian Basin, you know, if we look at uh, uh, sort of our break-even points in, in, in bringing oil from the ground, um, that price has dropped significantly. And, and so a few years ago, uh, if and, and particularly through fracking, uh, uh, it, the break-even was like $75 a barrel. Across most places in West Texas, Eastern New Mexico, that's fallen closer to $40 a barrel break-even, which means that when oil is trading above 100 as it is now, or even $117 uh, per barrel where it is right now, that creates a huge incentive for producers to sort of take that oil out of the ground. And, 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 and this takes time. And in short, it's almost like supply chains were hit by a shock, but we couldn't find, you know, we can't find other producers in other parts of the world. We don't have ships, infrastructure or or supply chains. And so it takes us a long period of time to sort of adapt accordingly. And, and by the time we adapt, we're often confronted by yet another shock. And that's always sort of the, the fundamental economics problem of the day. We have a shock to prices. We want to lower prices in some way, and we have the means to do so, but we, we're, we're kind of tied. For instance, um, one of the suggestions was, uh, uh, you know, we are, the U.S. as part of a coalition of 30 other countries uh, released about 60 million barrels of oil, uh, you know, uh, or agreed to release 60 million barrels of oil as part of the strategic international reserves. And, and 60 million barrels of oil represents about three and a half days of U.S. consumption of oil on average. And so when you think about an entire year, it sounds like a really big number, 60 million barrels of oil. We expend, we use about 18 million barrels every day in the United States. Wow. It is so hard uh, uh, to compensate for market changes in a meaningful way. What an interesting time to be teaching economics at a university. I'm sure your students are just literally seeing this play out. And I think it's, it's, it's just an interesting reminder that uh, no matter, as we discussed, I think earlier on here, it's no matter how far away this may feel, the uh, effects of it are very real and, and you know, uh, very close to home, so to speak. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And they're likely going to be with us for quite some time. And uh, and again, you know, you know, when we look at this, you know, my advice to all New Mexicans is to check your budget, look at the look at those numbers, shop around when you can. But, you know, it's 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 a ride. And, and, and often times like this, we don't have many choices on, on how and where to get off. Are you concerned poverty will become, you know, more at the forefront that's true. One big concern, especially um, here in New Mexico, I think not only do we have higher than than average, higher than national average uh, poverty rates, but but thinking particularly around uh, childhood poverty, um, families will be making difficult choices. You know, many uh, families commute long distances for work, for school, for other reasons, especially in New Mexico. And and oil price increases have direct effects upon them. So, so so then they look at it and they say, well, I have to go. I have to pay you know, I have to fill up my tank to get oil, but that often comes at the expense of other household goods they might need. It might be books for children. It might be uh, food and other supplies. And so, and so I think that, that one thing to look, look at in particular in this situation is, is, is the condition of New Mexico families in response to budget shocks like this one on the other side and, and sort of a, a ray of hope is that we've, we've, our, our, overall job market remains very strong in New Mexico relative to our long-term rate. Our unemployment rate's higher than the national average, but it's still about 5.9%. And, and, and there are, you know, increasingly jobs available, but the hard part is, is, is whether the market is available to fit those jobs. And obviously it, uh, it's very unevenly distributed in New Mexico. And, and we've seen that uh, population losses in rural areas, population increases in, in our urban centers, and it's likely it will continue. Well, Ro Riley, thank you so much for illuminating us to uh, the effects of a crisis like this. Yeah, we appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for having me. 
certainly a difficult and sad situation playing out. As the professor pointed out, families will be making difficult choices in the coming weeks, months, and maybe even years. Our thanks again to Riley White for joining the conversation. We will have another episode next week on Tuesday of the New Mexico News Podcast. In the meantime, you can send us your ideas, your questions, your comments. I'm at Chris McKee TV at Twitter, and then also on email. That is chris.mckee at krqe.com. If you like the show, please share it with a friend. Write us a review on whatever podcast player you're listening from. You can also reach me at gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on Twitter. Thanks for listening.